Lord, your word tells us in Hebrews 13.3 to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, as those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. And God, we want to remember the Iranian church here this morning. God, you've told us that you have authority over all nations and that we have been commissioned to make disciples of all nations. So Lord, remind us again and again and again that Christianity isn't just what's taking place here in western Connecticut, but it's what you're doing around the world. And so Father, we want to remember what you're doing, and we remember with incredible gratitude, God, how you have transformed the church in this country. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to fuel the fires that are there. God, we pray that you would continue to add to the church in Iran that believer after believer would come into the fold and, Lord, they would be bold despite suffering persecution, Lord God. Those who are in prison, those who face ostracism from their families and so on, Lord, we pray that they would not deny the name of Christ. And may that be an encouragement for us here in America as well. And Lord, may you raise up the leaders that they need, Lord. The sheep need to be trained and discipled, and so we pray that you would raise them up, Lord. We know ultimately you are the great shepherd, and you will lead and guide your sheep. But we also know that you use these leaders here to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So we pray that you would do that. But Lord, our hearts are just filled with joy for what you do as a remarkable reminder that, Lord, as Jesus said, you have started this church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Fathers, we think also just about our own nation. Lord, our hearts are heavy and thinking about the floods in Louisiana and the tremendous damage that has been done to this state. Lord, we pray that you would provide for those who have lost their homes and belongings and are displaced, and Lord, who are grieved and distraught. Lord, we pray that your church would reach out. Those who are there in Louisiana, we know Christians come from all over the country, particularly as part of our denomination's disaster relief ministry, we pray that they would be salt and light, Lord, loving, with, loving these people, mourning with those who are mourning, and God, giving them hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for that recovery effort, Lord. May it go well, and may people see your goodness and grace through it all. And Father, now as we look at your word, we pray that you would bless and instruct us and teach us, Lord, that we would be changed and different, as a result of our time here together, Lord, may your word speak clearly and directly to each one of our hearts. That is my prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, does anybody recognize the painting behind me? Can you guys see that? Well, if you can, it's the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci that he completed in 1498, one of the most famous pieces of art ever. Of course, the work pictures Christ with his disciples on their last, sharing their last meal together. The painting is about 15 feet high and 29 feet long and covers the wall of a dining hall in a monastery in Italy. Unfortunately, this painting has taken quite a beating through the years. Listen to this description about what 
Leonardo's painting has endured. Quote, as early as 1517, the painting was starting to flake. By 1556, fewer than 60 years after it was finished, Leonardo's biographer, Giorgio Vasar, described the painting as already ruined and so deteriorated that the figures were unrecognizable. In 1652, a doorway was cut through the by the, excuse me, by the then unrecognizable painting and later bricked up. This can still be seen as the irregular arch-shaped structure near the center base of the painting. In 1768, a curtain was hung over the painting for the purpose of protection. It instead trapped moisture on the surface, and whenever the curtain was pulled back, it scratched the flaking paint. In 1796, French troops used the refectory, which is another word for dining hall, as an armory. They threw stones at the painting, and climbed ladders to scratch out the apostles' eyes. During World War II, on August 15, 1943, the refectory was struck by a bomb. Protective sandbagging prevented the painting from being struck by bomb splinters, but it may have been damaged further by the vibrations. It's amazing it's still around, right? <laughs> so various restoration projects have been tried. Some of them were actually more harmful than helpful, but in 1978, a massive restoration project was undertaken. They converted the dining hall to a, a very sealed, climate-controlled environment and performed a detailed study to determine the painting's original form by using scientific tests and original cartoons. So the restoration was completed in 1999 after 20 years. So can we show the, what it used to look like? That's what it used to look like in the 70s. I don't know if you can see it, but if you, if you saw it up close, it's not looking too good there. And then there is again the after. Remarkable difference. What a difference it makes. It kind of helps to recapture the beauty of the original painting. Now in some ways, I think it's fitting that the painting of the Last Supper was obscured over the years because in a similar way, the truth and the power of the Lord's Supper, which originated from that Last Supper, has been obscured over the years. The simple but profound words of Christ have experienced neglect, misinterpretation, and undue traditions added to Jesus' words. We need to go back to the original, if you will, to enjoy what God intends for the Lord's Supper. Hopefully this morning can be a bit of a restoration project as we think about that. Now just to set us on the same page, we're in the middle of this sermon series on the ordinances or sacraments that Christ gave to the church. The two sacraments or ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these two ordinances symbolize essential Christian truths. The last two weeks we've looked at baptism. Baptism marks a person's one-time entrance or commitment to the church, the community of believers. We saw that baptism doesn't make someone a Christian, but it is their public declaration of their faith in Christ. And the Lord's Supper is an ongoing remembrance of the sacrificial death of Christ that is the basis of our salvation. So friends, overall, the ordinances are incredibly important for the life of the church. Christ commanded us 
to keep them, and they're very rich in meaning. I think as you'll see today, if we will understand what these two ordinances are, they really encapsulate the message of Christianity. That's how wonderful and powerful they are. So as I said, today we're going to look at the Lord's Supper. And this morning, I just want to look at two questions this morning. The first is, what is the origin of the Lord's Supper? In other words, how did we start celebrating this? How did it come about? Of course, we're going to be looking at the Last Supper there in a few minutes. And then the second question is, what is the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper? Is His presence physical, physically present in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup? Is it spiritual? Is it symbolic? Those questions are important because Christians have talked about these and debated these issues for centuries. And my prayer is that after we're done, we'll hopefully have a better understanding of what the Lord's Supper means, the significance of it, and see it in a better light to be refreshed by it. Let me just give a quick word before we begin about terminology. There are different words that Christians use for this celebration. Eucharist, communion, and the Lord's Supper. Eucharist is the Greek word for thanksgiving, eucharistia, that is associated oftentimes with this celebration. And it makes sense. When Jesus instituted the ceremony, he gave thanks. And our hearts should be full of gratitude, right, when we celebrate. Communion refers to our union with Christ and our union with other believers who are part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says, the cup of blessing, speaking of this ceremony, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So communion refers to our participation in the body of Christ and with other believers. And then the Lord's Supper refers to the fact that it was the Lord Jesus who instituted this ceremony, this meal. And it revolves around Him, and He commands us to remember it. So in my view, I think it's fine to use any of those three words because they all have a biblical basis, don't they? All right. Now, for the sake of this message, we're just going to say the Lord's Supper. Um, it is the only one of those words that is used specifically in Scripture. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. All right. So just wanted to clear up that real quick when people have. You might have celebrated in different ways with different words. I think they're all fine, but today we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. So let's start with that first question. What is the origin of the Lord's Supper? How did we ever come about, come about that we celebrate this to begin with? Well, we can't understand the Lord's Supper unless we remind ourselves about the founding event, and that is the Last Supper, the Last Supper. Friends, the Lord's Supper, in a very real sense, is a reenactment of the Last Supper that... Jesus celebrated with his disciples. So we're going to understand the Lord's Supper. We need to know what took place at the Last Supper. And of course, the context of the Last Supper is that this was the last week of Jesus' life. He had just come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover on Sunday. And throughout the week there, he was having incredible tension with the Jewish religious leaders who were trying to trap him with various questions. And then, of course, Jesus was responding to them with blistering condemnation and exposing their hypocrisy and their ignorance of the Word of God. Okay, so the, the tension was mounting, 
And Jesus knew that the religious leaders were seeking his death. And he also knew that it was about to happen, that he was about to die. So on the night before the cross, Jesus gathers his disciples for the Passover meal. And this was going to be Jesus' last meal with them. Now before looking at what Jesus says, I think it's also helpful to remind ourselves what the Passover that they were celebrating was about. In the book of Exodus, God promised to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt and to bring them into the promised land. God sent various plagues to Egypt so that Pharaoh would release them, but each time Pharaoh refused. Finally, God promised to strike the firstborn in Egypt so that Pharaoh would release his people. And he also provided a means of protection for the nation of Israel. Each family was to provide a sacrifice of one-year-old male lamb or goat without defect to serve as a substitute for that firstborn child. Then they were to put its blood on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house so that the destroying angel who was sent into the nation of Egypt would pass over their house. Exodus 12.13, the Lord says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And of course, the Lord carried this out, and Pharaoh finally allowed Israel to leave Egypt. God didn't want them to forget this. And so every year, they were commanded to remember the Passover and their exodus from Egypt. So friends, Passover was the most important Old Testament holiday for the Jews. So now going back to Jesus and the disciples, all of that sets the stage for what we call the last, or excuse me, the Lord's Supper. Okay? Jesus takes this Passover meal and reinterprets it in light of who he is and his ministry. And Jesus often does this. He will take some promise or text or allusion in the Old Testament and he will reinterpret it through his own person and ministry. For example, in the Old Testament, the Lord is often called a shepherd or the good shepherd. Jesus takes that and applies that to himself. And so here now with the Passover, he takes the bread and the wine and he points to himself. Everybody see that so far? I mean, we just can't go right into the Lord's Supper. You really have to understand that this is built off the foundation of the Passover, which Jesus is going to take along, take aside here and change and transform because he fulfills it in so many ways. So let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. Now with that foundation in mind, Matthew 26. And we're going to read this famous scene at the Last Supper. Matthew chapter 26, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, page 832. If you're using one of the red Bibles, I should say, I think we've, we've swapped in some of the black Bibles as well, but if you're using one of the red Bibles, it's page 832. If you're using one of the black Bibles, sorry, just have to use the table of contents there. I'm not sure where 832 is going to land you. All right. So, Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. All right, so what, what do the bread and the cup, the wine, what do, what do they symbolize here? What is Jesus trying to get across? Well, they both point to the same reality, but there is a distinct focus, I think, with the bread and the cup. The bread, I think, symbolizes Jesus' substitutionary death. Jesus takes that bread and he breaks it and he gives it to others. His words and his actions symbolize that he would be broken on behalf of others. And I think here one brings to mind, and this would have been in their minds, I'm sure, the Passover lamb that was sacrificed on behalf of others. Right? And we know, of course, that as Scripture develops, God implements a sacrificial system where the various animals would serve as the sin substitute for the people of Israel. And this went on for centuries. But tucked in, in the midst of all of those discussions, surprisingly we read in Isaiah 53, which Adam alluded to earlier, speaks of a Messiah who would die for sin. He would experience a substitutionary death for others. Isaiah 53, verses 5-7 to says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter... And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So Jesus, after the Last Supper is completed, Jesus goes on and fulfills this prophecy where he would suffer on behalf of others. And he, was, he experienced tremendous suffering, didn't he? He was beaten by the religious officials. And then when he was turned over to the Romans, he was flogged. Which was an incredibly brutal beating. Where they would take leather straps and they would embed in the leather straps sometimes bits of metal and stone and bone and then they would whip that person and flesh would come out as they would beat them. People often would die just from the flogging itself. But then Jesus went on, and then of course He was crucified. An incredibly brutal form of death. But above all, Jesus suffered the wrath of God for our sins. All of the weight, the sinful weight of humanity, past, present, and future, was put upon his shoulders. And he experienced in his own person what we should rightly endure. Jesus endured it on the cross. What I would experience, say for example, for, for eternity's judgment, Jesus absorbed that in that time on the cross. And you multiply that out by how many people who've come to know Christ. And that is what Jesus endured on the cross as our substitute. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the bread symbolizes Jesus' substitutionary death. He was broken on our behalf. His body and his person were broken. The cup symbolizes the new covenant. Remember what Jesus said there, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So again, the Old Testament background is essential here. In the Old Testament, when God established that covenant with the nation of Israel, it says in Exodus 24.8 that when God and Moses ratified the covenant, it says it was sealed with the, quote, blood of the covenant. So the Old Testament covenant was sealed with the blood of these animal sacrifices. And we know from Old Testament history that Israel wasn't very faithful, were they, with that covenant Despite God warning them so many times, they just weren't faithful in keeping that covenant. So God, in His incredible, infinite mercy, decided He was going to have a new covenant. He was going to institute a new covenant. Jeremiah 31.31 speaks of a new covenant that was going to surpass the old covenant. That's just who God is. He's so gracious, instead of just wiping them out, He says, you know what, I'm going to institute a new covenant that will be built upon even greater promises and greater grace. And so Jesus now, as He's sitting here in the upper room, is basically instituting that new covenant. That had been promised for centuries. He was claiming to be the fulfillment of that promise, and he seals it. Notice what he said there in those words, with my blood of the covenant. Going back to Exodus chapter 24. And of course, part of the new covenant that Jesus was going to institute was that his blood would atone for our sins. And here's kind of where you see the overlap with the bread and the cup. There's some overlap there. Because in the Old Testament, blood was the means of atoning for sin. But we know that the blood of animals was only a foreshadowing, wasn't it? Of a future and greater sacrifice. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him, Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Friends, Passover for the Old Testament was the moment, the climatic event, when they were liberated from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Now Jesus has come along and said, now we have a new covenant where you're going to be liberated from the bondage and slavery of sin. New covenant. Far greater promises. And friends, Jesus is exactly that. He is the Passover Lamb the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul writes, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Peter 1.9 speaks of the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In Revelation 5.6, Jesus' vision of the throne room speaks of a, quote, lamb standing as though it had been slain. A few verses later, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So friends, the Lord's Supper, when we come to it, it really encapsulates the fulfillment of Jesus and redemptive history. The bread symbolizes Jesus' substitutionary death for His people, and the, blood, and the cup symbolizes the new covenant. Pretty powerful, isn't it? I just want to pause for a minute. 
Because the Lord's Supper is basically declaring the gospel. It's declaring the message of Christianity. And just to kind of bring this home to us personally, so we're not just learning about what it means, but to also to ask ourselves where we stand in relationship to this incredible message, this incredible new covenant that Jesus has given, and to put ourselves in light of it. Because Jesus is teaching that we need a substitute. Right? We have all sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. And because God is just, He's going to punish our sins. And so we have a choice. Either we suffer for them when we die, or we can trust Christ as our Passover, our substitute, so that God's judgment will pass over us. We cannot save ourselves. Why would Jesus come to this earth and endure what I just spoke of a few moments ago if there was other ways of salvation? There is no other way. If there was another way, He would not have gotten up from that Passover meal and then gone to the Garden of Gethsemane and had basically his soul split in half in agony knowing what he was about to face, sweating drops of blood because of the stress and the duress that he was experiencing, knowing what faced him. If there was another way, Jesus surely would have not gone through what he did. Amen? But he did it, friends, because he loves you. And he wants you to have judgment pass over you because he's already experienced it on the cross. And so we have that response, don't we, of turning from our sins, being broken, just like the bread's broken, just like Jesus was broken. God calls us to be broken, to be broken over our sins, to be broken over what it led to on the cross and what Jesus did for us, and to humbly turn from our sin and to believe in Christ. Amen? So the Lord's Supper is remarkably powerful. There is just so much there. So the second question, though, as we close out here today, just briefly, wanted to talk about this because it has to be talked about. What is the presence of Christ? Is it a physical presence when we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper and the bread and the cup? Is it a physical presence? Is it a spiritual presence or is it symbolic? As I said, this is a critical question because there's long-standing differences among Christian groups about how do we take these elements, the bread and the cup. And it has really profound implications about how you take it yourself, doesn't it? So the first view is that it is the physical presence of Christ. It's held by the Roman Catholic Church and is traditionally called transubstantiation. It means a change from one substance to another. So they would hold that when the authorized priest consecrates the bread and the wine, the elements change, transubstantiate, to the physical body and blood of Christ. The outward appearance of the bread and the wine stay the same, the touch and the taste and the smell and so on, but 
the substance changes to the physical body of Christ. Hence, people are encouraged to worship the elements themselves. I have to say this view developed over time, but it became official. There was diversity within the Roman Catholic Church, but it became official doctrine in 1215 A.D. and has remained standard doctrine to this day. So what do we make of that? Well, I think there's two objections I would bring to the table. First is that Jesus used symbolic language at the Last Supper. When Jesus held that piece of bread and said, this is my body, we've got to ask ourselves some questions. Would the disciples have thought that Jesus was a piece of bread? Would they have thought they were eating and drinking Jesus' body at the very same moment that he was sitting in front of them? Would they have thought that Jesus would eat and drink his own body then and in the new creation that he refers to, right? In the last part of the passage. And could Jesus' physical body, because he only has one physical body, right? That's what the Scriptures teach. He has a human body, one body. Could his physical body now appear all over the world as churches celebrate the Lord's Supper? my mind, clearly Jesus used symbolic language. He did this often. This isn't new for Jesus. He was a master teacher. He used literal language. He used symbolic language. And so sometimes he says, you know what? I'm the gate. I'm the vine. I am the light of the world. He is none of those things, literally, but he's using them symbolically. I think he's doing the same thing here. These are symbolic words. But then secondly, Jesus' sacrifice was final. Let me explain this for a second. Roman Catholic doctrine holds that the Lord's Supper is propitiatory. What I mean by that is that it takes away sin. Now, they do distinguish between what they call Christ's bloody sacrifice on the cross and the Lord's Supper, which is a bloodless sacrifice. They distinguish in the two. But both of them are an atoning sacrifice, meaning that they take away the sin of the recipient whether they receive it in faith or not. So the Lord's Supper in this view is an atoning sacrifice that is repeated over and over. But the New Testament teaches that Jesus' sacrifice was a one-time event. In John 19.30, when Jesus was just about to die on the cross, he declared, it is finished. It is finished. There was no longer any need of a sacrifice. The temple veil was torn down, okay? There was no longer any need of a sacrifice. In the book of Hebrews, the writer lays out a very detailed argument that Jesus' sacrifice was final. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 to 14, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So friends, I think it's unnecessary for Christ to offer himself repeatedly as is taught there in Roman Catholic doctrine. His sacrifice was complete and it was final. So the second view though, it says that it is the spiritual presence of Christ. The spiritual presence of Christ. The bread and the cup is the spiritual presence of Christ. 
The Presbyterian Reformed churches would hold this. This view would reject the physical presence of Christ and affirm a spiritual presence of Christ in the elements that nourish and bless those who receive it when they do so in faith. So Christ is spiritually present in a special way. Now, I would say in response to this, overall, there's nothing inherently wrong, like I would say, with the physical view. But there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that Jesus is uniquely present. Yes, in his deity, he is omnipresent. So he is everywhere. And we also know that he can manifest his presence in a a specific location, like obviously he does in heaven, or as we see in Revelation when he appears to John or the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. He can appear if he wants to in a localized presence. But it never says, he never claims that about the Lord's Supper. He never says he's spiritually present apart from his body. Rather, he says, this is my body. So I think it's kind of a case of trying to have your cake and eat it too. To me, it's inconsistent to take Jesus' words about his body to mean his spiritual presence when he specifically refers to his body. Are you following with me? Either it's symbolic or it's not. But it's not both. That leads to the third view. The third view is the symbolic view. Baptists, Pentecostals, Charismatics, most non-denominational churches hold this view. They don't believe that Christ is specially present in the elements physically or there's a unique spiritual presence. Rather, the Lord's Supper symbolizes Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. So it's not the elements themselves, the bread and the cup that are significant, but it is what they point to as a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus did on our behalf. And so we don't experience grace necessarily just through the ceremony itself, but we grow spiritually as we come to the Lord's Supper in a way that honors Him as our hearts are prepared, as we understand it, and as we grow as a result of responding appropriately. And that's going to lead to next week. Because Scripture has given us guidance in how we should take the Lord's Supper in a way that most pleases Him. I don't think it pleases God sometimes the way we take the Lord's Supper. We should come to the Lord's Supper very prepared, as Paul will teach us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are not to take the Lord's Supper in a lighthearted fashion. Especially as what we have just read and what Jesus endured on the cross on our behalf, heaven forbid that we should take the Lord's Supper in a flippant manner or a lighthearted manner. And on the same token, we're also supposed to balance a very sober view of the Lord's Supper with a very celebratory view of the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about that next week. The Lord's Supper should be somber, in some respects. But it also should be an occasion where God's people are flat out celebrating. So next week we'll talk about how do we take the Lord's Supper? Who should take the Lord's Supper? How do we prepare ourselves individually? How do we take it together corporately as a church? And friends, yes, it does matter how we take it together as a church. It's not just one little piece of bread and, and a little cup and it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It matters to God how we take this together as a church. 
How often should we take it? And some other various questions. But then best of all, we'll actually take the Lord's Supper next Sunday. So that should be an awesome occasion. Well, let me pray, and then we'll just open up the time here. If there's any conversations or responses or any words of encouragement that you guys would like to give in light of of today's message, we'll do so. Father, we do just think of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And Lord, the words that just keep coming to my mind is that because of what we did, we just sang about this so much in the songs, is that His work is completed. Romans 8 1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, if there's someone here today who has trusted you but has just, just really been beleaguered by doubt and guilt and maybe struggling with sin in their own lives, Lord God. And they think, How would you ever forgive them? Lord, may their hearts gravitate back toward the cross. Because you died that final sacrifice so that we don't try to seek it or to earn it on our own good works. Lord, it is a finished sacrifice that you have brought about on our behalf. Lord, may we know that freedom. You've called us to that. And Lord, for someone here today maybe who's never just really understood what the cross was all about. We see it. The Lord's Supper declares what the cross is all about, how Jesus died on our behalf and has brought forth this new covenant so that we might know you, all of our sins washed away, past, present, and future, Lord, and to have a personal relationship with you and to spend the rest of eternity with you in heaven. God, we declare hallelujah. But I pray if there's someone here today who's never understood that, never been broken over their own sin, because that's how we come to the cross. We must come humbly and broken. Lord, I pray you would open their hearts and minds. And that today might be the day of salvation. It's not a matter of adding up good works. It's not a matter of jumping through rituals and hoops and ceremonies. It's simply a matter of repenting, turning from our sins, and believing in Christ. And Lord, we pray as a church, as even we prepare our hearts for next Sunday. It's an exciting Sunday, looking forward to it, Lord, when we get to celebrate with all these truths in mind and hopefully molding us and shaping us. Lord, we pray as a church that we would take of the Lord's Supper in a way that would honor and glorify you. And not just be something we do every couple of months, Lord, but something that is powerful and transforms us as we do so. And we come in this prayer In the name of the Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ, in his name we pray, amen. Amen.